0: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Linda J. Seligman, author of Quinoa, Food Politics and Agrarian Life in the Andean Highlands, published this year by University of Illinois Press. Dr. Seligman, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Stentor. I'm looking forward to talking with you.
0: To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
1: Uh I'm an anthropologist and uh my area of specialization has been sociocultural anthropology and I've worked in the Andean region of Latin America now for over 40 years especially in the Andean highlands of Peru and I've done lots of different kinds of research ranging from looking at the symbolism of textile motifs and the functions of cloth in the Andes to Looking at uh, market women as cultural, political, and economic brokers in the um, urban regions of the highlands, and my uh, I've also looked very closely at uh, agrarian. Conditions because so many of the Quechua-speaking people of the Andean highlands have relied for millennium upon uh, 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 relied for millennia upon um, agriculture and herding for their livelihoods. So those are just some of the projects I've done. This is the latest um, on quinoa, and it was peaked. By returning to the Andes after a five-year hiatus and realizing that quinoa was all the rage, and in the district where I had worked for many years, all of a sudden farmers were experimenting with growing different kinds of quinoa, and so I became intrigued
0: by that. Okay, so what are some of the different meanings attached to quinoa by the farmers by the Peruvian government and by foreign consumers that are purchasing a lot of this
1: that really uh was part of what lay at the heart of my research um i i had noticed you know that in the united states uh there were more and more people consuming quinoa in different forms but it had never actually been a central part of or a staple of uh, the diet of Quechua people in the countryside. And yet when I came back in 2018, um, especially in Cusco, which, of course, is a tourist Mecca, it was the ancient capital of the Incas. You could see quinoa candy for sale, uh, quinoa cookies and crackers and so forth. But in the Highlands, quinoa is a valued part of the diet. Um, and it's often consumed on special ritual occasions or as, um, you know, a soup and occasionally, um, it's consumed roasted, um, and it's considered, um, valuable because the, uh, it, it can, there are many, many different kinds of quinoa, many variants, and they're extraordinarily adapted to different micro uh, environmental and ecological conditions. So the different kinds can withstand drought, frost, um, you know, soil that differs across range, different altitudinal conditions. So it, it, you know, it provides resilience for the population. And it comes in a rainbow array of colors. I mean, red, yellow, black, pink. Uh, it's very beautiful as well. Um, and it, of course, in other parts of the world, quinoa has now become regarded as a highly valued food as well, because it um, provides a protein, it provides a uh, amino acids, it's gluten-free, it's aesthetically pleasing, and uh, it's used in the U.S., usually in a mix with other foods that are considered healthy for people. The Peruvian government um, saw this as an opportunity, and in 2016, the United Nations declared um, Peru to be sort of Peru's uh, first lady to be the international ambassador for quinoa. And this set off uh, efforts on the part of the Peruvian government to stimulate quinoa production for purposes of export. So it was a way of attracting attention to Peru's export products, of bringing in some foreign exchange, of leading to development or further development in the countryside. Those were all the kinds of things that people saw in quinoa, that in a way it could be uh, almost magical in solving some of the challenges that people faced in Peru. Okay.
0: So I would imagine a lot of our listeners have heard this claim that goes around that this fad for quinoa among Western consumers has driven up the price, and so now you know people in Peru can't afford it, and so it's actually bad for them that you know we're eating quinoa. So how true is that? What's really the the underlying story of the effect on uh, on farmers in Peru of this you know, enormous growth in uh, foreign consumption.
1: Right. Um, well, the research results on that are very mixed, and there's a need for further research. And it's done at a macro level. It needs to be done both at the local level or micro level and at the macro level. And right now, the results are mixed. Um, it doesn't appear that it's caused that much of a problem for people to continue to consume quinoa in the countryside if they want to do that. The real problem lies in what happens when a crop becomes an export crop. And we've seen this with many, many different um, Cultigens or, or you know, agricultural products and even beverages over the years, uh, which is that in the case of quinoa, as I said, there are all these different var- varieties, and when something becomes an export product there's a tendency to want to focus on only a few of those varieties and they're focused on because there's um, higher production in terms of volume Uh, maybe a certain kind commands a higher price Um, maybe it appeals more to the tastes of people who are consuming it in Europe, the United States or parts of Asia like Japan but it isn't necessarily the kind of quinoa that people in a particular part of the world would consume domestically for themselves, they may have other kinds of quinoa that they pr- prefer. So that's what happens is that there's this drive to produce for the export market, and then not as much is produced for domestic consumption often, or at least not the kinds that people want to consume. And then an equally important consequence is that should there be environmental factors that, uh, in, you know, cause problems that create problems for the harvest, then it's like a boom and bust situation in which, you know, you lose your entire crop rather than what the Quechua people have done for eons, which is to uh, focus on diversity as a way to adapt to all of these different environmental conditions. So if one kind of quinoa would fail or one kind of potato, there was another that they could turn to because it wasn't relentlessly geared to the uh, market. And so so those are really the issues involved more than that. It's become too expensive. It is true that the first year of the quinoa boom, the prices skyrocketed and that did cause problems for people to purchase on the local market quinoa. Of course, this was like the, you know, Dutch tulip disease, which it boomed. And then because more and more people started producing quinoa for the export market, it went bust. Um, and at this point in time, it's reached more of a happy medium. Exa- actually, it's still very high, the export market, but not as high as it was in that key year of 2016.
0: Okay, so we've been talking kind of about Peru in general here, but your book is really uh, focused on a particular place where you were working, Wanokite. Uh, if I'm saying that correctly, that's correct. Um,
1: it's Wanokite.
0: Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about Wanokite? You know, why did you choose to to work there? What's you know unique about that uh, that particular location?
1: Well, Wano Kite, uh, you know, is is uh, consists of many, many different microecological ecological um, zones, and I had decided to work there um, when I first started doing my doctoral research, and at that time, I was interested, actually, in how new agricultural ideas got incorporated into the district and you know who the individuals were what were they like that allowed them to tinker or experiment and then have that knowledge spread um, specifically with respect to agriculture um, throughout the region and um, I did indeed find those kinds of individuals they were quite remarkable um but it turned out that the time and I knew this before I went um when I decided to go there was in the midst of a civil war and this was some of your reader, uh some of your listeners may have heard uh, about this but this was uh, a war that pitted the shining path guerrillas or sendero luminoso uh against uh the military and paramilitary and civilians really got caught in the crossfire um and in the end there were um i think close to 70,000 deaths and disappearances in that war until it finally subsided with the capture of the leader of Sendero Luminoso in 1992. But people there were much more interested in having me look at the conditions that led to that civil war. And what that caused me to do was to look at the major changes in uh, land tenure, that is, who had rights to land, either through use or ownership, political organization and labor regimes in that region. So that was the backdrop um, for a book I wrote called Between Reform and Revolution, Political Struggles in the Peruvian Andes. When I returned and I had many friends and um in in Wanokite because I had spent 14 months there and then come back periodically. But when I returned in 2018 and saw this change in, in how people were, you know, viewing the production of quinoa, I thought it would be really interesting to look at what the desire for quinoa worldwide was having on this region socially politically economically i was also interested in how gender intervened in this because women played a very important role in how quinoa is processed how it's marketed and how people perceived it and i thought it would be good to work there because i had such a long you know uh history of i had a, a knowledge of how things worked there there are other places that produce quinoa in different conditions the puno area which uh it lies really between peru, uh, peru and then parts of bolivia is known for its quinoa production and it's organized in a very different way there there they have Uh, extensive flat areas, and they tend to organize in cooperatives, whereas where I was working and in many other parts of the Southern Andean highlands, uh, it's in intermontane valleys. And people formed, with the encouragement of NGOs and the regional government, into cultivators associations, which operated in a very different way. Um, but that's why I decided to do this in Wanoquite, because it's known as a, a very fertile, dynamic zone um, for agriculture and was part of this experiment in incentivizing people to cultivate more and sell more quinoa.
0: And you mentioned gender in that last answer. And I wanted to follow up on that. So how does gender shape the way that quinoa is grown and prepared and so forth uh, in Wanokite
1: Right. Um, one of the things that's really important is that women nurture their households and they're the ones who process and cook the food. That uh, sustains their families. And, uh, you know, it, it isn't that men don't cook and can't cook. They sometimes can. And it isn't that women don't work in the fields because they do that as well. But uh, they uh, pay close attention to the kinds of foods that are prepared and what's considered healthy and why. And it's not only nutrition that is what they feel is comforting and healthy for their family but also they have their own sense of aesthetics as well and so i was in and in the case of quinoa and this is very important for quinoa to be edible it has it has a bitter outer hull that's called saponin and that outer hole has to be rinsed in order to get rid of the bitterness. And it is women who have traditionally done that. And sometimes the quinoa has to be rinsed up to 20, 40 times to get rid of that. So it's a very labor intensive task. Um, And so they've usually used it in small quantities um, because of that. And actually, That's another question of how it's grown, which is also very arduous. But in any case, um, one of the uh, sort of tensions in this increase in quinoa cultivation was that there's also a concern about the health of families, of children, especially in areas with a high degree of poverty. And so the Peruvian government saw quinoa as a healthy option for school breakfast, for example, um, and wanted to encourage that. They also recognized, and so did a lot of people, that by focusing on the export market, perhaps they were ignoring too much the domestic market. And to encourage quinoa production and consumption, quinoa consumption among Peruvians themselves. But behind this lay the work of women, the work of women in selecting seed, quinoa seed for different purposes, the work of women in processing it, the work of women in preparing it. And often um, they took on a huge burden in this respect and were not properly compensated for their labor. And when this impetus began to focus on certain kinds of quinoa rather than others, many of the women were very upset about that because they felt that maintaining these different varieties was important in terms of what was the healthiest and most nutritious food for their own households. And they were also promised by uh, the regional government through various branches, including one that was focused on agricultural innovation, relying on indigenous crops, um, that eventually a, a sort of industrial scale um, pearler that's P-E-A-R-L-E-R would make its way to the district and it would rinse the quinoa at a scale that would be fantastic for everybody in terms of serving as a labor saving device um, kind of like what was used for purling rice Um but not this is a long history in the andes in terms of how development unfolds and oftentimes it's top down development without sufficient attention and listening to what people themselves see as priorities or most important um so these were technocrats engineers uh who really didn't interact or talk much with the women and the finally a machine arrived that was supposed to serve as the perler for the quinoa Um, and the women were totally disappointed first An engineer didn't arrive for several years to explain how to use it. And secondly, it turned out that it was nothing like industrial scale and it only was able to rinse very small amounts. So these kinds of glitches have, uh, I wouldn't say completely soured people in continuing to grow and export quinoa, but they're far more wary of how much they're going to rely on that. And they certainly don't re- regard uh, producing for the export market in the way that people wanted them to um, as a silver bullet
0: for their needs. Okay, so then shifting gears a little bit, um, what is a, a waka and how do farmers in Peru maintain their relationships with wakas?
1: Um, <laughs> wakas are different uh, spirit sites or power sites within the Andean landscape. And they have great power and they are considered on a par, if not more powerful than human beings. They exist in a complex ecosystem in which there are human beings and there are many other sentient beings in the universe and they interact and are intertwined with one another and human beings who whose world who believe i, I believe is is not exactly it but who is who are part of that world think it's very important to keep these sentient beings and themselves in balance with one another and in order to do that they have to be very observant and pay very close attention to how all of these sentient beings, they can be water forces. They can be Apus, which are powerful mountain peaks. They can be certain rocky Formations. They can be streams of light. Um, they can include. Uh, n- these aren't all wakas These are different kinds of sentient beings that occupy the universe. Uh, they're d- the animals, the herding animals, the alpacas, the yamas, horses, uh, which came from Europe, um, but all of the or came from the New World. All of these are part of their universe and so if something goes awry it can have a detrimental effect on the universe so a lot of their actions their rituals are uh, are focused on maintaining a world in balance through reciprocity that is mutual exchange But also sometimes uh, humans feel that it is necessary to give in excess or to give more in order that the earth, for example, return its fertility to them. So that's why wakas are so central to... Um, occupations or activities like agriculture and herding. Um, It's also the case, and this has been more publicized internationally and certainly in the United States, that certain kinds of activities like deforestation or mining have devastating impacts. Um, allowing for reciprocity and balance in that universe. So, so uh, just to jump a little, then uh, the this may seem far removed, and I was surprised how it tied in to the story of quinoa. But when I first when I first arrived in Guanokite. And I was met my, by my compadre, uh, a man who has uh, been recognized as an excellent and knowledgeable farmer and is well-respected. He said, he, he immediately said, we're going to go to the quinoa fields right away so you can see them and then we'll probably be harvesting tomorrow. So even though it was, I was very exhausted after a long trip, we went on up to the quinoa fields and um, while we were sitting there and people were talking, they started talking about um, things that, you know, I hadn't expected to hear at all, um, which was that, uh, you know, there were all sorts of issues going on with gold and the mines. and um, you know that that whether it was a good thing or not, whether it provided uh, employment opportunities um, for for uh, people in the villages, and of course, what it was doing to the environment. um and I thought, well I was didn't know exactly what this had to do with quinoa. But to make a long story just a little shorter, uh, it turns out that the Peruvian government over the years has granted many, many mining concessions to transnational companies all over the highlands. And it's a very complicated situation because it isn't that uh, communities have rejected always out of hand these uh, mining operations if they are activated. Uh, The concessions are often sort of secretly granted and people in these communities didn't know about them. But if it is then activated, um, oftentimes the companies try to negotiate with the communities, it may as uh, say, "Well, look, if you move to this new territory, then we will provide you with, you know, a new school. We'll provide you with different resources and so forth." So it has created uh, divisions within communities that don't know what's better to do, given the powerful forces um, that are aligned against them. Um, And in this case, the mining concessions were located very close to, very far away from Wanokite actually, and very high up, but at these five sacred lakes, that bring Wanoquite's water to it. And as I said, it's a very fertile agricultural area. It travels many kilometers to get there. It helps irrigate their fields. And the mining operation would, of course, pollute that water and um, endanger the very foundation of agrarian life in Guanoquite. And in addition, as I said, those lakes are considered sacred. And if people do things that um, sort of perturb the lakes, they will rise up and cause floods and terrible rains and, um, you know, turn into monstrous ducks. And so these narrative traditions are really about keeping the universe in balance. And so the mining turned out to relate very, to be very closely linked to what was happening, not just with quinoa, but with Agrarian life altogether. And that sustains not only people in Wanoquite, but people all over the world.
0: So. Okay. As in the. The beginning of that story that you were telling there, you you mentioned you arrived in Peru and met up with your compadre. So I think that's a good uh, segue into asking you about your relationships with the people in Peru that you were working with, since this is a a site you've been studying for a long time. So can you talk a bit about how you maintain those relationships, how those relationships that you have with people uh, shape the research that you're doing? I think...
1: There are many aspects to that. Um, I've become very close friends with a number of people there. And um, I've always felt an obligation to make my research um, available to people, um, whether it's in written form or talking about my findings. Um, but I think it's a very uh, difficult path. I, At the same time, I think that I arrive at research findings that can be helpful to people in Wanokite. It must be their choice their decision, their interactions with each other as they discuss these things to decide what they want to do with that knowledge. Um, Some people I know there, there are many debates that go on within anthropology about collaborative anthropology, engaged anthropology and activist anthropology. And I have to say that my I feel like my research falls between collaborative and engaged anthropology um, rather than activist anthropology. But I also see on the other side that there's a place in which In other parts of the world, including my own country, the United States, um, Europe and so forth, where what I learn may have an effect on how people perceive what they're doing. And we've seen that in all sorts of ways in the context of climate change and environmental sustainability. And I think lots of people just delight in quinoa as a wonderful food uh, that they can partake of without really knowing what lies behind, in some cases, you know, the availability of quinoa in, in the supermarkets and restaurants and so forth. So I think I can make an impact there as well um the other uh very powerful part of my work in wanokite or my relationship to people in wanokite was that i began working there in 1984 and that's really a long time ago and in certain ways and so when I went back this last time, and I went back twice, um, the pandemic interrupted things. So I have not yet gone back since the pandemic, but um, I realized that it might be the last time I was spanning relationships with three generations there. of uh, The very older people, we're beginning to die, and the youngest were becoming full fledged authorities in their communities. And one of the um, wonderful things about this kind of longitudinal perspective was seeing how much more agency the people in Wanoquite were taking to assert themselves. And to demand things of other people instead of just not, you know, coming out of a brutal history of racism and of the, you know, servile kinds of relationships with large landed estate owners and then the terror of the Civil War. Um, it, It was really satisfying to see people coming into their own and saying, we want this, we don't want that. And this is why. And their children being socialized into those kinds of comportments as well. And in my case, you know, they wanted all sorts of things from me. And I was very happy to give them. Those things and uh, my book, I have uh, given to them with a translation that I prepared myself, um, so that they can at the so that they can think about it and use it for their own needs. Uh, so all those things I think are, have been uh, really rewarding and wouldn't have happened if I didn't have this much historical depth.
0: All right. So as we're moving towards the end of our time here, uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing this book.
1: There are so many people who have been helpful to me, but first and foremost, the people in Wanokite who have always uh, shared, um, not always, but who have been willing to tell me how they think about things to allow me to accompany them into all sorts of situation in particular um demetrio and victoria pantoja have been uh, D- demetrio pantoja and victoria sanabria have been remarkable i also have great respect for the um uh, people working in different bureaucratic agencies who have a good grasp of what life is like in the countryside. And even though they're constrained by these bureaucracies, at, for example, at the Agric- Institute for Agricultural Innovation or the regional government, they are trying very hard To do things differently than what has been done in the past. Um, I also think that thinking about next steps, what would ideally transpire would be to arrive at a way to recognize the value of. Andean science, if you want to call it, everything that people have learned about how to cultivate all of these different varieties of crops and in particular quinoa, to have some kind of return that accrues to them and to also create more regional commodity chains that go from, you know, farm and field to domestic consumption, to local restaurants, to tourist restaurants. And I'm sure, even though it would be difficult to figure out, it would be much more sustainable than simply providing to an export market. And one last thing that was central to my book, and that I actually didn't mention when we were talking about sort of the uh, cosmopolitics or cosmovision vision um, of Quechua people is that they're very pragmatic. I don't want to give the impression that this sort of keeping the world in balance is something that is highly spiritual. It involves very pragmatic considerations, and that may be that includes an astonishing knowledge of the environment and ecology, but also uh, the legal universe of knowing how to cooperate and act as a community. Um, And I'm not suggesting there aren't conflicts and tensions in all of this within communities, but I think it's very important to realize that this isn't some Othering that is going on. This is these are people who are very much part of the universe in which we as well reside.
0: Okay, and then for our traditional final question on the New Books Network, uh, what are you working on next?
1: Well, I'm actually not working on anything now, but this I, I guess I jumped the gun a little because I think this question of how you can take an export crop and realign it so that it actually does provide what people who are growing it want and need through tighter commodity change, through regional food networks Um, is something I'd really like to
0: be involved in. All right. Well, that sounds really, a really great uh, next step from this book. So uh, Dr. Seligman, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you. I, I, Thank you for for having me.
0: This has been a conversation with Linda J. Seligman, author of Quinoa, Food Politics and Agrarian Life in the Andean Highlands, published this year by University of Illinois Press.